located at 1745 Folsom Street in the Mission District of San Francisco. Let's hear what locals have to say about Rainbow Grocery. Their bulk section is dope AF. I love their, their variety of cheese and home decor items uh, and this of unique items that you can't find anywhere else. Their cheese section is insane. I love Rainbow Grocery because it's the number one grocery store to shop at when you're having a potluck and need to fulfill everyone's dietary needs. They don't have meat. Rainbow Grocery Cooperative, an amazing San Francisco staple since 1975. For all your space chicken sci-fi comedy non-political humor needs, go to Tim's. Welcome to Labor and Love, celebrating the passing or memorializing the passing of Mikis Theodrakis with a scene from a street in Ottawa, Canada, as a bunch of Greeks get together to publicize the Ottawa Greek Festival. Mikis Theodrakis. As the dance goes on, people stop and join. The one man dancing by himself becomes a man and two women dancing. As more people come by, more come and join. we do when everything seems hopeless? We dance.
Good morning, America. Illinois Central. Good morning, California. Good morning, San Francisco. Buenos dias a la misión. Good morning, everybody. Labor and love. Southbound Odyssey, the train pulls out from Kankakee and rolls along. and trains that have no names and freight yards filled with old black men and the graveyards of the rusty automobile. the floor and the sons of Pullman porters and the sons of engineers ride their father's magic carpet made of steel and mother of your babe to sleep rocking to the gentle beat and the rhythm of the rails is all they feel
That's our intro. That's our intro to Labor and Love Radio. Every Saturday morning at 10 a.m., we join you on the morning shift. Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Or a hundred people worked for a penny they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is where you work. You're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Welcome to Mutiny Radio, mutinyradio.fm. Physically located here on 21st Street, Cross Street with Florida. Come on down to the El Mero Mero, the heart of the Mission District, and find your voice. We've got audio, we've got video, we've got art installations, we've got comedy. We've got a radio station, a truly independent radio station. And we've got you, if you're out there listening Please donate to Mutiny Radio or come on down and find your own voice. Remember the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival starting 2nd to the 16th. A little later on, we'll get to that and we'll let you know how, how many shows there are and when. Got to mention the Giants. Giants win today. They into their division title, an amazing uh, year if you're a baseball fan. And if you're not, well, 
I'll try not to spend too much time on this morning. We had, of course, Willie Nelson and the High Women rocking it on the city of New Orleans. And uh, for that, we had Bob Dylan, a song that we used to play all the time. You gotta serve somebody. Might be the devil, might be the Lord, might be capital, might be labor, but you gotta have to serve somebody. So who's it gonna be? And then before that, the Zorba dance from Ottawa, Canada, talking about the the Greek songwriter Mikis Theodrakis. Theodrakis died on September 2nd. A partisan, a resistor to the various dictatorships that Greece has been yoked under, including the dictatorship of the European German-dominated common market. Theodrakis' last words, some of his last words were like this. <clears throat> now at the end of my life, at the time of reckoning, the details fade from my mind and remain the big picture. So I see that my most critical, strong, and mature years were spent under the banner of the KKE. That's the Greek Communist Party. That is why I want to leave this world as a communist. Theodrakis wrote that to the leader of the Communist Party several months before his death. On Thursday, Theodrakis died in Athens at 96. He was a legendary composer and was active in the Greek resistance between 1941 and 44 during World War II and the resistance to the Greek military junta. Seven years between 67 and 74. He was jailed, tortured, forced into exile, elected to the Greek parliament several times, twice from the communist leftist platforms, Opposed imperialism, fought for peace and the cause of the working class. Also received many international honors, including the Lenin Peace Prize. He was born in Chios, one of the islands. Took his first lessons in Patras and Pyrgos. Founded his first orchestra while in Greece. Moved to Paris in the 40s. Mikis Theodrakis. During the Greek Civil War, he was arrested, exiled to Ikaria, Makrakonisos, was brutally tortured. 
Following his return to Paris, from Paris, outraged at the killing of leftist MP Grigoris Lambrakis by far-right extremists in 1963, he ran for parliament and served on the United Democratic Left panel. He gave the score for the film Zorba the Greek in 1964. He wrote the Renarn Mounthausen trilogy based on poems of the Holocaust written by Greek poet Yakovos Kamenbelis. He also wrote the score for the movie Z which chronicled the killing of uh, Gregorio Larambakis, the Greek pacifist leader, by the people who later would become supporters of the colonels. Uh, he gave music to Pablo Neruda's Canto General and Yanis Rizzo's 18 short songs of the bitter motherland. 1974, he became active again in Greek politics, served as a minister from 1990 to 1994. Anyway, um, Mikis Theodrakis, one thing that happened uh, during the era of the colonels is that a lot of activists like Theodrakis, besides being um, tortured and prison and brutally overworked, right? Um, they sent a lot of these activists to an island and then uh, erased the island from all the maps of Greece. Amazing, huh? Instead of just imprisoning your, your resistance people, you... Uh, Send them to nowhere. <laughs> um, Nikis Theodrakis, legendary Greek comp composer. So this is the B, and we're coming at you from Mutiny Radio. I'm going to read some of our credos. Credos, the things we believe, and we believe you should believe too, but you don't have to. We start with Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Going to Robert Reich. Reich is the former Secretary of Labor under uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, quit in disgust when he saw people like Larry Summers, Robert Rubin getting rich and quit. Reich says, your reminder that your reminder that the richest one percent own half of the stock market. 
and the richest 10% own almost all of it. When the news comes on about the stock market going up or down, he's not talking about the economy 90% of Americans inhabit. How's that, huh? You hear, oh, the Dow is up, the Dow is down. Okay. The uh, Dow Jones average means something for somebody, but not for everybody. Here's Utah Phillips. Kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the Northeast. Why? Why is that? You've seen those pictures of sad little kids standing around big, huge monster machines. <clears throat> Mothers shucking oysters with little kids hanging on their legs. All those things. Why? Because we organized. We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. We have child labor laws. Those were not benevolent gifts from an enlightened management. <clears throat> As then, the argument is, oh, well, their families are so poor, they need the income. And that's where it gets. If you want to do away with child labor, which is on the rise again, by the way, worldwide, you build a just society. Where no one has to struggle for the basics. These were not benevolent gifts from an enlightened management. They were fought for, they were bled for, they were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs. That's why I tell these stories. Damn it. No root, no fruit. No root, no fruit. Okay. Now we just saw that one. No root, no fruit. Immigrants. What about immigrants? I don't mind if they're immigrants, undocumented immigrants. They aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are dem normal people, normal working people, trying to live a better life. We should never forget that. The rich don't come here and get in line or try to ride trains or try to sneak across the border. They don't have to. This whole wall, deport the, deport the illegals, BS is just the 1% convincing the working poor to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor. Instead of realizing the reason they're all poor is due to the vast income inequality and resource price inflation in combination with wage stagnation. Their times are tough. There are a lot of poor people it's not tough for everybody. They're billionaires. They're millionaires. 
There are people getting rich hand over fist based on your labor. The existence of another poor person is not why you're poor. Because the people who control everything refuse to increase your wages. Okay. Um, not that much in the politics. Well, your boss is, your landlord is, your insurance company is, and every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. Time to get into politics. Okay, let's see what else we got. What about rape? What about rapists? A woman can get raped and not want to have a child born of the rape. But if she goes to get an abortion, she could serve more time than the rapist served for raping. How about that one? Huh? What do you think about that one? So those are our credos what we believe here. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. So, about uh, Danielle Nicole. Daniel Nicole of uh, Kansas City, Missouri. And here's how it works. Right now we're stuck on some ads.
Beautiful poem by Jack Kerouac about October in San Francisco. There was a little alley in San Francisco 
back of the Southern Pacific Station at 3rd and Townsend, in red brick of drowsy, lazy afternoons with everybody at work and offices, in the air you feel the impending rush of their commuter frenzy, as soon they'll be charging en masse for market and sansom buildings on foot and in buses and all well-dressed through working man Frisco of walk-up truck drivers, and even the poor grime be marked Third Street of lost bums, even Negroes so hopeless and long left East and meanings of responsibility and try that now all they do is stand there spitting in the broken glass, sometimes 50 in one afternoon against one wall at Third and Howard. Here's all these Milbray and San Carlos neat necktied producers and commuters of America and steel civilization rushing by with San Francisco Chronicles and green call bulletins, not even enough time to be disdainful. They've got to catch 130, 132, 134, 136, all the way up to 146 till the time of evening supper in homes of the railroad earth when high in the sky the magic stars ride above the following hot shot freight trains. It's all in California. It's all a sea. I swim out of it in afternoons of sun-hot meditation in my jeans with head on handkerchief on Brakeman's lantern or, if not working, on book. I look up at blue sky of perfect lost purity and feel the warp of wood of old America beneath me. And I have insane conversations with Negroes in second-story windows above, and everything is pouring in. The switching moves of boxcars in that little alley, which is so much like the alleys of Lowell, and I hear far off in the sense of coming night that engine calling our mountains. But it was that beautiful cut of clouds I could always see above the little SP alley. Puffs floating by from Oakland, or the gate of Marin to the north, or San Jose south. The clarity of Cal to break your heart. It was the fantastic drowse and drum hum of lum mum afternoon, nothing to do. Old Frisco with end of land sadness. The people, the alley full of trucks and cars of businesses nearabouts. Nobody knew or far from cared who I was all my life, 3,500 miles from birth all opened up and at last belonged to me in great America. Now it's night in Third Street. The keen little neons and also yellow bulb lights of impossible to believe flops. The dark ruined shadows moving back of torn yellow shades like a degenerate China with no money. The cats in Annie's alley. The flop comes on, moans, rolls. The street is loaded with darkness. Blue sky above with stars hanging high over old hotel roofs and blowers of hotels moaning out dusts of interior. The grime inside the word in mouths is falling out tooth by tooth. The reading rooms tick-tock big clock with creek chair and slant boards and old faces looking up over rimless spectacles bought in some West Virginia or Florida or Liverpool, England pawn shop long before I was born. And across rains, they've come to the end of the land sadness, end of the world gladness. All your San Francisco will have to fall eventually and burn again. But I'm walking, and one night, a bum fell into the hole of the construction job where they're tearing a sewer by day. The husky Pacific and electric youths in torn jeans 
who work there, often I think of going up to some of them, like, say, blonde ones with wild hair and torn shirts, and they say, you ought to apply for the railroad. It's much easier work. You don't stand around the street all day, and you get much more pay. But this bum fell in the hole. You saw his foot stick out. British MG, also driven by some eccentric, once backed into that hole. And as I came home from a long Saturday afternoon local to Hollister, out of San Jose, miles away across virtuous fields of prune and juice joy, here's this British MG backed and legs up, wheels up into a pit and bums and cops standing right outside the coffee shop. It was the way they fenced it, but he never had the nerve to do it due to the fact that he had no money and nowhere to go and oh, his father was dead and oh, his mother was dead and oh, his sister was dead and oh, his whereabout was dead, was dead. But and then at that time also, I used to lay in my room on long Saturday afternoons listening to Jumpin' George with my fifth toque, no tea, and just under the sheets laughed to hear the crazy music. Mama, he treats your daughter mean. Mama, Papa, don't you come in here, I'll kill you, etc. Getting high by myself in room glooms, and all wondrous knowing about the Negro, the essential American, out there, always finding his solace, his meaning, in the Fellaheen street, and not an abstract morality. And even when he has a church, you see the pastor out front bowing to the ladies on the make. You hear his great vibrant voice on the Sunday afternoon sidewalk full of sexual vibratos saying, why, yes, ma'am, but the gospel do say that man was born of woman's womb. <laughs> no, and so, by that time, I come crawling out of my warm sack and hit the street. When I see the railroad ain't gonna call me till 5 a.m. Sunday morning, probably, for a local out of Bay Shore. In fact, always for a local out of Bay Shore. And I go to the whale bar of all the wild bars in the world, the one and only Third and Howard. And there I go in and drink with the madmen, and if I get drunk, I get girl who come up to me in there one night, I was there with Al Buckle, said to me, you want to play with me tonight, Jim? And I didn't think I, <laughs> I didn't think I had enough money. And I told this to Charlie Lowe, and he laughed, said, how do you know she wanted money? Always take the chance that she might be out just for love, or just out for love. You know what I mean. Don't be a sucker. She was a good-looking doll. And she said, how would you like to ooh your cool with me, mon? And I stood there like a jerk. In fact, bought drink, got drink drunk that night in the 299 Club. I was hit by the proprietor, the band breaking up the fight, before I had a chance to decide to hit him back, which I didn't want to do anyway. And out on the street, I tried to rush back in, but they had locked the door and were looking at me through the forbidden glass in the door with faces like undersea. I should have played with her shoo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-
dicen así Interesting set there. This show is nothing if not eclectic, huh? That was uh, Daniel Valdez, brother, uh, one of the Valdez brothers, founders of the Teatro Campesino in San Juan Batista, and theater that has produced stories like Zoot Suit. Um, Movies. Uh, Valdez was singing about America de los Indios. 
check it out if you don't speak Spanish. America de los Indios. The America of the Indians. Not the America we think of and picture and talk about and watch about and listen about. That's one America, but there are others. America de los Indios. Take a little break now and listen to and listen to um, Labor Notes, Radio Labor. This is Radio Labor. The worldwide This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. This is a Radio Labour World Report recorded on Friday, October 1st, 2021. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, Industrial Global Union elects a new general secretary to defend labour rights worldwide. How women in India are using WhatsApp to confront domestic violence. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. Nurses work is hard, but if you show your union card, though bosses cut staff to the bone, you will not walk alone. This is Radio Labor. The worldwide attacks on labor rights is increasing and unions need to fight back. That is the primary message that came out of the recent Congress of the Global Union Industrial. Industrial represents workers in a wide range of employment sectors, including mining, energy, garment production, and manufacturing. At the Congress, held online in September, Atla Heya was elected as Industrial's General Secretary. In his acceptance speech, he called the attacks on labor rights a war. I asked him what he meant by that and what's happening. Well, I think that we don't really understand the length that governments, employers, and also other structures will go to erode trade union rights. They take every means at their disposal in order to crush unions globally. And this is a thing we've seen for many years, but I think it's getting worse and worse. And we really have to put up a fight to be able to secure even the most basic trade union rights, like the right to organize and the right to collective bargaining. We also see that a number of countries are moving towards dictatorships, and dictatorships never serve trade unions or workers. So maybe war is a tough word, but I think that the length some actors are going in order to erode trade union rights, we're actually getting there. Do you have an example of where this is happening? Well, I'm in Europe now. I uh, am, Our organization has a headquarters in Geneva, and not far from here is a country called Belarus. It's a European country, a dictator called the last dictator in Europe. Uh, this country had elections last year in August, and uh, President Lukashenko was re-elected by a big margin, but uh, clearly a false election. And ever since, there has been protests in the country from the free and independent trade unions. And they have really been starting to cracking down on independent trade unions over the last months. 
We work a lot with independent trade unions in Belarus, but now it's almost impossible to get to them. They are imprisoned, they are tortured, and they are scared or frightened for doing trade union business. So that's one example. We have several examples of big countries where they're changing legislation. Indonesia, for example, the infamous omnibus law, which reduces trade union rights considerably in law. India is doing the same. You can practically mention countries all over the world. In Europe also, countries like Hungary, Poland are moving in the direction of more autocratic rules. So you have these examples all over the world. Given these happenings around the world, the Industrial Congress adopted a four-year plan of action. What does the plan consist of? What does it do? Well, the action plan consists of five chapters. It's an introduction of where we see the world today. And then we have four strategic goals that we build all our activities around. The first goal of the action plan is to advance workers' rights, which is, in my opinion, the most pressing issue, not only for workers, but I think for societies in the world today. It means, in my opinion, extreme focus on the right to organize and the right to collective bargaining. I think that if we manage to focus on these two rights to win the war on these rights, to put it in that way, we can solve many other questions. But as long as people don't have the right to organize and the right to collective bargaining, they have nothing to stand up to their employers or governments with. So that's the first chapter, talking about women's rights, talking about health and safety, talking about precarious work, and so on. And then, of course, to be able to fight for these rights, you need to build strong unions. So that's the second chapter of our action plan, how we can stand together to build union power. We do that in many different ways, but we have a lot of projects, work, cooperation, building unions, building capacities, providing strength to the unions in their fight for membership, but also for their rights. Then we have a chapter called Confront Global Capital, which is a chapter that talks about how we confront the big capital, the big multinational companies in the world, how we help unions in countries where unions are not so strong to build their power in the big multinational companies, amongst others through help of the trade unions in the mother country of the company. So we're trying to build strong networks within the company, but also along the supply chains. Because, of course, the supply chains are getting more and more important for corporations. They're using supply chains to avail themselves of responsibility for their production. And we need to build that responsibility back in. There is a survey from a couple of years ago from the ITC that shows that from the 50 biggest multinationals in the world, 96% of those making money in production for these companies are in an outsourced part of the company. They're not in the company itself. Only 6% of the people they rely on for their income and revenue are actually employed by the company. So we really need to build this power throughout the supply chains of these multinational companies. And then finally, uh, we have a chapter called Sustainable Industrial Policy, which means that we help our affiliates build their own industrial policy so that they can present to their governments, present to their employers what we as trade unions see as necessary when it comes to industrial policy for the development of countries, development of companies, 
but also for sustainable impact on employment and the workers' wages and benefits. Lockdowns necessitated by the pandemic has increased domestic violence as men take out their frustrations on women. Seamarie Ainsborough reports on how women in India are confronting the problem. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit India in 2020, the effects were especially hard on women. As the government implemented lockdowns and forced people to stay in their homes, women were isolated and left without help to protect themselves. The rate of domestic violence soared and there was very little assistance from the government. But women across the nation started to organize. One group started to use WhatsApp to connect their members over vast areas. WhatsApp is a messaging service which lets users text each other, chat and share media, including voice messages and video. It's particularly useful for lower-income people because it uses data transfer and so does not cut into their monthly text allotment. To highlight the digital activism of women in India during the pandemic, the International Transport Workers Federation, the ITF, produced a video. In 2020, as the Indian government called for a nationwide lockdown to combat the pandemic, it witnessed a surge in domestic violence cases. A complete lockdown meant that accessing support became difficult, leaving women trapped at the mercy of their abusers. Despite these hurdles, women advocates in India were able to provide relief and support to survivors without even stepping outside their homes through a network of WhatsApp groups. Women advocates, or Nirbhayas, as they are known in India, have created a primary WhatsApp group called Pramukh Nirbhaya, consisting of about 250 core members from the 36 districts of Maharashtra. Fortnightly discussions are conducted in the group on major issues and decisions are made, which are then passed on to secondary groups from each district, consisting of women from respective depots. In this way, information is spread all across the state, reaching more than 5,000 women within minutes. This further increased their digital reach, which proved invaluable when the nationwide lockdown led to a rise in domestic violence. What the Nirbhayas have achieved through the years are among the many stepping stones towards winning an equal space at work and within the unions. The video was produced by the Women's Advocate Program of the ITF and Women Transporting the World. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top stories section included links to coverage of the long struggle for respect by Ukrainian public transport workers who only recently won recognition for their union. More fallout from the decision by the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions to disband in the face of Chinese state repression and a new round of government attacks on independent trade unions in Algeria. The emerging and continuing trend in our news coverage this week is the resurgence of trade union activity in Iran. This is a country that regularly imprisons and even executes workers for attempting to form independent trade unions or for organizing actions in defense of their rights and those of their co-workers. Despite this, in the past year or so, we have seen large-scale job actions undertaken by workers in several sectors. We've even seen a victory of sorts in a form of a meeting between representatives of the striking oil workers and government officials. In part, this increase in worker organizing is the result of the government's mismanagement of the pandemic as it affects workers and their families. 
It's far too soon to say where these developments will take Iranian workers, but we'll certainly be watching closely. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found reports of bullying and harassment in the Irish Defence Forces, ongoing discrimination against pregnant workers in Australia, and a look inside the union representing New Zealand's midwives. Our Health and Safety Newswire brought you stories about the effects of a truck driver shortage in the United Kingdom on the drivers who remain. The Brexit-induced shortage is placing pressure on UK drivers to work longer hours, and there's no end in sight. We also covered the global health and safety training push by global union BWI and the assistance being provided to Afghan women media workers by the Journalists' Union of Pakistan. Our photo of the week is of a massive protest by Iranian teachers who were pressing their demand for improved working conditions and for free education for all Iranian children. Labor Start hosts online solidarity actions at the requests of unions around the world. This week, we'd like to highlight an urgent appeal for online solidarity with Iranian oil workers who are striking for better working conditions and for the state to recognize their union. Look for details of this and other campaigns on our site. It takes only a few seconds to send a message that could help change workers' lives for the better. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is the old labor song, Stickin' to the Union, the nurse's version. There once was a union nurse who saw things had gotten worse. She noticed lots of work shift slots left blank by the boss who held the purse with only half a crew. He said, you'll bear the work of two. Standards fell, she had to tell that boss just what she'd do. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. This union nurse was wise to the company's rotten lies. The takeaways, co-pays, and ways that the base state tries to downsize. Nurses give their all, but they can't always be on call. So when the strike vote came around, she boldly stood her ground. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. They offer lousy deals and they're digging in their heels. When will there be a weekend free for friends and family? Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. Nurses work is hard, but if you show your union card, though bosses cut staff to the bone, you will not walk alone. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Till the day I die. And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can listen to our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. 
I'm Mark Pomarshan. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Not just the uh, ball players forming a union, but he's talking about the union as a way to bring social justice to areas, for example, the South, union of college football players. Jennifer Abruzzo, the Biden administration's top National Labor Relations Board lawyer, issued a memo Wednesday asserting her position that certain college athletes are, in fact, employees and therefore entitled to the protections of National Labor Relations. That means that the legal path of unionizing college football players is now open, wide open. Real lasting progressive change in the South is hard generally anti-union area where the government and right-wing forces aggressively produce anti-union actions. Well, here's an idea for a new progressive institution power enough to bend the South to its will. A union of college football players. In a number of states, a well-organized union of college football players could be a stronger political force than the state of the Democratic Party. Civil War ended 156 years ago, but Mississippi did not move the Confederate flag from the state flag until 2020 and it was threatened with losing access to college football championship games. That's how powerful college football is. 
powerful. So, ammo. Wanted to find out. NLRB Zabruzzo raises the possibility that the NCAA could be considered a joint employer. Players along with schools themselves. Which would set the stage for one big contract governing thousands of athletes. Um, this is an issue that, you know, people have a lot of double think about. Remember an interview with a college coach who was asked about paying wages. Think uh, players should be paid wages for their work. And he happened, he was making three or four million dollars a year. And he said that uh, that would be those players would that would be coddling the players, making things too easy for them. Can't remember exactly what his words were, but that was the import of what he was saying. That they're uh, that football players are already privileged, and that would be just too much privilege for them. Meanwhile, he's hauling down between three and four million dollars. <laughs> A word that we didn't cover. Um, but it was students at Mississippi State. Uh, who demanded the changes, demanded that that Confederate flag be taken down. And there's an article about article about it is here's what we know about Um, college football teams in Mississippi banded together to protest social justice. There's uh, the Clarion Ledger, Clarion, Mississippi. The topic of social injustice was not lost. Uh, I think they've gotten pretty used to it. Quicker than I thought they would. Listen to this interview. Covering some ground there. Next, we'll go to Steve. Hey, Coach, what, what's the most difficult part of that, you know, for a guy that's used to having a guy kind of in his hip pocket, and now all of a sudden there's nobody there? Courage. Honestly, it's just courage. I mean, you know, you know, as an offensive line, we try to, when we pass that or anything we do, it's about getting to the, the leverage and the junction points and all that stuff. So once you get over the fact that you're set into the same space, okay, you just don't have somebody attached to your hip, okay, now it's just courage. Like, 
you're playing in a little bit more space, but there's still going to be help there. You're still going to have help on double teams and, and some of the schemes. So it's not uh, courage, I guess, would be the best answer. Up next, we'll go Paul Jones. Coach, uh, Dollar Bill's a guy that, that he, he's going into his third year, but he hadn't played much football due to suspension last year and redshirt the year before that. How is he getting adjusted to the new offensive scheme and uh, kind of where is he at in your eyes right now in camp? Uh, he's playing with a lot of confidence right now, to be honest with you. To be 100%, he's playing with a lot of confidence, and uh, he's been running with the ones. The story that I wanted to talk about is not so much Mississippi's chances in in the upcoming year. Um, Ole Miss players boycotted Friday morning's practice. This would be in August of 2020. Something I didn't hear about, and probably most of you didn't. Southern Miss players stayed off the field Friday, too, as the nation continues to grapple with racial strife. The state of Mississippi made sure it did not stay silent. Mississippi State players convened at Unity Park in downtown Starkville instead of practicing Thursday. Unity Park is the same site where many Mississippi State athletes gathered for the start of the Starkville Justice March June. Bulldogs posed for a picture in front of the wall of plaques commemorating famed civil rights activists. Mike Leach, the coach of Mississippi State, says, I'm proud to be the head football coach at Mississippi State. I applaud our players expressing some of their fears and anxieties today. I support them and look forward to working with them tomorrow to use football to elevate us and the people around us. Hail State. One of the players comments, We are much more than football players. The bigger picture stand with my team till the end. We will no longer tolerate the injustice in this country. So proud to be on this football staff, Director of Player Development Jay Perry tweeted. Even more excited to work with our players. Often they teach me much more than I could ever teach them. Here, here. I'm with you, men. Amazing. What is this buckaboo? We're all talking about this buckaboo. I remember uh, Jim Bunning, just because he was a great ball player, besides being senator from Kentucky, talking about socialism creeping in to American life. Now, Bunning was one of the founders of the Players Union union that represents baseball players, but yet and still, this bupagoo, socialism, what is it? What is it? Why is everyone so worried about it? Here's Francesca Fiorentini. The monster today. hiding under America's bed, our chupacabra, our candy man. Say it three times into a mirror and your kid goes to college for free. 
Americans are so used to demonizing socialism that most don't really know what it is, or they're shy to admit that they're curious about it. Like how most adults are afraid to watch the Twilight series because what if they discover they're totally on Team Edward? But thanks to a 76-year-old self-described democratic socialist and now a whole host of candidates running openly as socialists, maybe it's time to understand it. We're looking at some of the biggest myths told about the S-word. Hit it, Kate! We've all heard socialism described by the right. You wait in lines for hours, you eat what little nutrients are available, and everyone wears the same thing. Why does socialism sound a lot like Disneyland? Socialism is a favorite straw man of the right, used to disparage any candidate that mentions anything that resembles something like generosity, whether it's Barack Obama or Bernie Sanders. And instead of including socialist voices on television to clarify, they actually have segments like this. Uh, I gotta go to the liberal panel. It's gotta be tough for you to look at uh, your candidates and see how boring and stiff they are. They're stiffer than you. Well, they are. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. But they did talk about policy, unlike the Republican debates, and it's not socialism, it's capitalism, it's democratic socialism within a capitalist society. You wanna talk about giving stuff away? Yeah. It's giving stuff, what Republicans do is give stuff to the top 1%. Is Social Security socialism? Medicare socialism? Yes. Medicaid socialism? Yes. You wanna take all that away? I do. I want to take all of it away. See you how that stupid works panel. campaign. I want to take it all away. I don't want the government taking my money. I can spend it better than they can, and I can't believe I'm yelling at you and again. Oh my God. Greg Gutfeld just lost an argument to an animatronic gag he scripted to make himself look smarter. That's like getting your ass kicked by a punching bag. Seriously though, there are many different definitions of socialism depending on who you ask. And just because a country has socialist policies doesn't mean it's a socialist country. There are degrees of socialism. So let's just start out with a safe Wikipedia description. Socialism is a range of economic and social systems characterized by social ownership and democratic control of the means of production. That sounds pretty harmless, and yet, of course, that's what a collectively edited, non-profit, free encyclopedia would say, and look how that turned out. Oh, pretty good. You can think about socialism as democracy for the economy, an economy that takes planning and forethought and doesn't just leave wealth distribution to the invisible hand of the market, which, in case you were wondering, looks like this for the 99% of us. And yet, instead of having an honest conversation about what a more democratic economy could look like in a country with the worst income inequality since before the Great Depression, we hear this. Listen up, all you Bernie Sanders supporters. We'll say it again. Socialism doesn't work. Socialism keeps failing. This is Socialism 101. We've seen it fail over and over again. It's failing now because of problems inherent to socialism. Myth number one. Socialism's been attempted and failed. But has it truly? Critics point to examples of leaders who took a twisted version of Marxism and implemented it to the extreme, like Pol Pot of Cambodia or Stalin's Soviet Union. But those are better examples of totalitarianism than anything else. As Noam Chomsky, linguist and man who lost award for most desirable lefty grandpa to a younger, hotter Jew put it, the Soviet Union wasn't actually socialist. He says Russia called itself that to trick those sympathetic to socialism, and the US did the same to make people more afraid of socialism. The core notion of at least traditional socialism is that uh, what you mentioned, that working people have to be in control of production. The Soviet Union is the exact opposite of that. Uh, working people had no control over anything. They were uh, 
virtual slaves. Also, why judge an ideology on its most extreme examples? That's like judging a love of baseball by the Red Sox fan who carved red socks into his forehead with a broken Miller Lite. Loving baseball is the least of his problems. Funny enough, though, even baseball isn't safe from the myth that socialism has failed. Listen to this announcer calling a Dodgers game suddenly go off on socialism when a Venezuelan player steps up to bat. Socialism failing to work as it always does, this time in Venezuela. You talk about giving everybody something free and all of a sudden there's no food to eat. Anyway, 0-2. Oh, Oh my God, I truly hope that somewhere out there there is a Spanish language announcer mentioning the failures of capitalism when calling an American soccer game. Bueno, son malos porque no hay dinero en el fútbol. No es como el fútbol americano donde hay muchos momentos para publicidades. El capitalismo vence al deporte. Piénsenlo, cero a dos. Yes, Venezuela is going through an insane political crisis right now, but it's not clear that that crisis has anything to do with their socialist policies. And since that would take another 10 minutes to break down, instead, we threw a couple of links to articles below for you to read. Yes, read. But what we never hear when discussing Venezuela is how putting their nationalized oil money into social programs led to a dramatic reduction in poverty and an increase in literacy. And how about Cuba? Has socialism failed there? Cuba is not a democracy, for sure, but it also has the highest literacy rate in all of Latin America, not to mention free healthcare and free higher education. And now they're developing a lung cancer vaccine, and that means they'll be able to safely smoke all the cigars that we can't even import. Instead, we've been left with vaping, which is somehow less cool than cancer. Another myth we hear is that socialism is too expensive, but too expensive for who? In France, the government covers all or pays back at least 70% of healthcare costs, which meant a lot when this couple had twins. Even though the boys were delivered by cesarean section and Nomi spent nine days in a private room, leaving the hospital, they paid 19 euros. 19 euros. Coincidentally, the dollar price of an Uber ride to the ER in the US to avoid going into debt over an ambulance ride. Compare that French experience to an American couple who went bankrupt after also having twins who were premature. It was 2.2 million. Oh, we lost everything. We paid every bill we could. We sold everything we could. We sold our car. We sold our furniture. We sold our clothing. We liquidated our 401ks. We got, we, I mean, we sold everything. Jesus. But you might be thinking, well, France spends more money on healthcare, and you would be wrong. Uh, France spends 11% of its GDP, and the US spends 17.2% of our GDP on healthcare. And France is consistently ranked as having one of the best healthcare systems in the world, while we clock in last when compared to the 10 most developed countries. But on the bright side, Trump is working hard to make us not a developed country. So what about students? Is socialism too expensive for them? Them? Because in many countries around the world, university tuition is essentially free. In Germany, it's even free for foreigners to benefit from, like Americans. I had heard things like I'd be able to drink, I'd have health care. Each month it cost about 600 euro to live here. My room, train tickets, school, food. My main motivation, of course, was saving money. Was it? Because I'm pretty sure the first thing you said was you'd be able to drink. So I think that's where your money's going to be going. Ah. You can take a boy out of South Carolina, but you can't take a tall boy out of his hand. 
Germany doesn't see free college as a drain on the economy, but believes that investing in young people's education, even that of non-Germans, will benefit the German economy in the long run. Compare that to how we pay for school in the United States, which is basically an F-U-I-O-U, as student debt just hit $1.5 trillion. Though to be fair, student debt is a job creator for student debt collectors. Germany's example flies in the face of another myth spouted about socialist policies, that they're not good for business. They stifle innovation and competition, and heavy regulations and taxes only make companies move abroad. Work for less, Bangladesh. But take Denmark. The government spends a lot on job training and education, especially for the unemployed. And Danish companies participate in these programs because it means they have a stronger workforce. So when Danes get laid off, they get help learning a new skill that isn't putting together IKEA furniture for strangers. Mostly because they hate the Swedes. In 2015, Denmark was ranked by Forbes as being the best country for business and is consistently ranked as the happiest country on earth, something Fox News blowhards like Bill O'Reilly desperately try to find a way to undermine. When I heard the Danes were the happiest people on earth, I thought back to my ancestors in Ireland who were beheaded and raped by the Danish Vikings. <laughs> and I don't know if that was a happy experience. I yeah, Bill, way to dunk on the libs by bringing up an unrelated grudge you've been carrying with you since the year 800. Later in the same conversation, the intrepid reporters hit on another myth about socialism. The it'll never work in America myth. There are five and a half million Danes. Right. And that's it. We have 300 million people here, Bill. Okay, this myth I really don't understand the logic of. If there are more people paying more taxes into a social welfare state, doesn't that mean more money? What, suddenly Americans don't know how to scale up? We gave the world Starbucks, Walmart, and King Kong. We're all about scaling up. Another myth about socialism is that it requires big government, and that government is not democratic. But look at Norway, a country whose economic model has been called a 21st century version of socialism, and has also been ranked as the world's best democracy. After the global financial crisis of 2008, Norway decided not to tighten its purse strings. Instead, under a socialist finance minister, federal control of financial assets in sectors like oil expanded, and the government directed that money into their sovereign Wealth Fund, or National Bank, which is part of the reason Norwegians enjoy benefits like universal health care, education, guaranteed parental leave, and oh yeah, no national debt. As far as democracy goes, Norwegians are automatically registered to vote, and 78% did in the last election, compared to our 55% in the last election. Not that the stakes were high. <sighs> Norway has nine parties instead of our two, a parliamentary system of proportional representation instead of our winner-take-all system, and Norwegians have reindeer. Can we have nothing? When all of the myths above fail them, conservatives always resort to a final myth about socialism, which is capitalism is better. Die-hard capitalists insist there is no alternative to their system. Sure, it's claimed as many, if not more, lives than socialism, from colonialism to rampant poverty caused by neoliberal economics to, oh yeah, the millions who died in wars fought to preserve its dominance, capitalism is still better. Just watch how economist Milton Friedman, the Bunsen of free enterprise, defended his ideology in an interview with a barrage of whataboutisms. But it seems to reward not virtue as much as ability to manipulate the system. Uh, and what does reward virtue? You think the uh, communist commissar rewards virtue? You know, I think you're taking a lot of things for granted. And just tell me where in the world you find these angels 
who are going to organize society for us. In Norway, we've been over this. They're with the reindeer. But if that kind of cynicism is what defends unfettered capitalism, maybe we should rethink it. But listen, I am happy to be proven wrong, which is why I'm going to consult my conservative panel. Hey, conservative panel, what do you think about all these socialist myths? What the, what, they're not myths. They're not myths at all. Generosity is evil. If you give people free handouts, they're gonna have to eat rats out of buckets. And don't ask me to link cause and effect. Cause and effect is fake news. Okay, okay, listen, conservative panel, I know you're confused and angry because things aren't always black or white. History is fluid, and your president is going down in a fiery ball of lies. But maybe keep an open mind about socialism. Capitalism is built on greed, which, as it turns out, is not best for either people or or business, or the planet. Maybe capitalism could use some socialism. Americans are innovative and hopeful, so maybe the world has yet to see the best of socialism, and even capitalism. Um, actually, Jesus turned the other cheek to ignore a homeless person. <sighs> Thanks once again for watching News Broke. If you haven't heard, this is our third to last video, which is oh so sad, but guess what? We've got two years, two years of videos every single week. So I don't want to see the tears unless you've seen all the two years. You know what I'm saying? We're going to miss this. We're going to miss you. But thank you so much for supporting. Still subscribe. You know, who knows? We might come back someday. Follow me on Twitter at Franny Fio. Follow the entire team at Franny Fio. And we will see you next week. Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1919. That was the day that began the Elaine Massacre. The massacre took place in Arkansas, where more than 100 black farmers and sharecroppers were gunned down for daring to organize their labor. The year before, a black farmer by the name of Robert L. Hill had founded the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America. Union members pooled their money to purchase land. They also hired a lawyer to sue planters who did not give black tenant cotton farmers their fair share of the profits. The group grew in membership in the Arkansas Delta region, including near the town of Elaine in Phillips County. But white landowners would not allow this challenge to their power. Armed white militias came to a church where the union was holding a meeting. The black attendees were also armed. Gunfire broke out. In response, white posses and federal troops unleashed a wave of terror across Phillips County. Hundreds of black residents were arrested. At least 100 black Arkansans were killed. Some estimates of those murdered is considerably higher. Five white people also died. 122 black men and women were charged with murder. 12 were given the death sentence. No white vigilante, however, was ever charged. 
the convicted African-Americans appealed their cases. One appeal for six of the defendants went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where it was overturned in a landmark ruling. The year of 1919 was one of the deadliest years of violence against African-Americans in U.S. history. Civil rights activist James Weldon Johnson called those bloody months the Red Summer. 26 race riots left thousands of African-Americans homeless and hundreds dead from Chicago. Chicago to Washington, D.C. to Omaha. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1851. That was the day that William Henry, a black cooper or barrel maker who went by the name of Jerry, was arrested in Syracuse, New York. He was first told that he was being arrested for theft, but then he learned that federal marshals had arrested him for violating the Fugitive Slave Act passed the year before. Jerry had escaped slavery in Missouri. The Anti-Slavery Liberty Party was holding its convention in a nearby church. When word came about Jerry's arrest, a crowd rushed to release him. Once released, he was quickly recaptured and returned to custody. But then a large crowd, numbering more than 2,000, gathered to free Jerry from the office where he was being held. According to research done by the Syracuse University Library, the first person into the office was J.M. Clapp, an iron worker likely chosen for his brawn. The crowd was able to free Jerry and hide him until he could escape into Canada. Clapp also had to flee to Canada to avoid arrest along with eight others. 19 people were indicted for participating in the rescue. Only one person was ever convicted and he died before he could appeal. In turn, the abolitionists won an indictment against the marshal who had arrested Jerry. They charged him with kidnapping. Although the marshal was acquitted, it gave the abolitionists a chance to publicly challenge the constitutionality of the Fugitive Slave Act. Each year until 1858, a Jerry Rescue celebration commemorated the event. Abolitionists referred to the, quote, Jerry level as a standard for justice. In 2001, a monument to the rescue was dedicated in Clinton Square in downtown Syracuse. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1949. That was the day Americans awoke to fears the nationwide steel strike would spread rapidly to include key fabrication plants. Half a million steel workers had joined 400,000 coal miners on strike the morning before. The miners resolved to defend their $100 a month pension, instituting what John L. Lewis called the no-day work week, emboldened the steel workers to walk out of the mills. Within 24 hours, 96% of all steel production in the country was completely shut down. United Steelworker contracts were due to expire on the 15th, but the writing was on the wall. The mill owners decried anything close to mine pensions as nothing short of socialistic and refused to budge in negotiations. United Steelworkers President Phil Murray thundered that those companies that failed to agree to demands for non-contributory pensions and insurance would be shut down. 
but militants warned that President Truman's fact-finding board had already watered down strike demands. The president's board had been established to put off two previous strike deadlines. The guidelines it issued only encouraged steel magnates to stand tough against United Steelworker demands. These included a 30 cent raise plus increased company insurance and pension contributions. Now it had become a defensive struggle over whether steelworkers would have to begin contributing to health and pension plans through wage cuts. By the time steelworkers ended their strike 42 days later, they had won the $100 a month pension minus what they would receive from Social Security. And they had to begin contributing to a health insurance plan with no wage increase at all. Still, workers celebrated that they had successfully defended the United Steelworkers against the all-out union-busting drive. I'm Rick Smith. So that was our Rick Smith Labor History in Two organizing in the South between black and white farmers, brutally suppressed. Jerry Level taking a captured slave away from the marshals who wanted to return him to slavery and basically freeing him, giving him a way to get to Canada. And 1948, that great period, right after World War II, when people came back from the war with the idea that they had fought against fascism, deciding that they weren't going to be enlisted into a supporting fascism. They were going to take the power in their own hands. And the response of the government and the powers that be, including things like the Taft-Hartley Act, Okay, it's 11.43. See if we can sing one now about... About Joe Hill by Clarence Cooper. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he in Salt Lake Joe, by God, says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you joe they shot you joe says i 
takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe, I didn't die, says Joe, I didn't die, and standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, Says Joe, what they forgot to kill went on to organize. Went on to organize. Joe Hill ain't dead, he says to me. Joe Hill ain't never died. We're working men all out on strike. Joe Hill is at their side. Joe Hill is at their side. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where work a strike and organize, it's there you'll find Joe Hill. It's there you'll find Joe Hill. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, fellow workers. Hope this last hour and so, hour and a half or so, has gotten you ready to have a good Saturday, a good weekend, a good week, a good month, a good year, and a good life. This is the B. Reminding you that when one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, at the table that is at your the negotiating table at your work. You're on the you're on the menu. Okay, sorry to say, do something about that. And never, but never let anyone into your heart was not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. Your work makes them rich. Goodbye, everybody. Have a good week and good work. And we'll be back next Saturday morning show of labor news, opinion, history, and songs 
of social significance. Apply now for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2019. Applications open until November 30th for 25 shows in five days. 40 comics chosen March 1st through 5th, 2019 for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's our fourth annual and we hope you apply. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk, MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> hey, everybody. Listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now to www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. Thank you. 
Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.Evan. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics, it's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere fun. $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe it's a cash cock honey <laughs> you down to Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco at 806 South Van Ness. Uh, we've got great food by our kitchen counter offer, burgers, tater tots, tachos, corn dogs, all sorts of good stuff like that. They're open from opening until 11 p.m. most days of the week, except Saturday. Uh, every Saturday night, we've got live rock and roll, some of the best local bands in San Francisco, and touring acts as well. Come on down, 10 p.m., rock and roll, only night of the week. We have a $5 cover charge, always 5 bucks for live rock and roll. We're open from 4 p.m. until 2 a.m., Monday through Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 2 to 2. Come on down, have some drinks with us. We've got Whiskey Wednesday, Tequila Tuesday, and we've always got the Steve McQueen special. Shot a bullet bourbon and a can of California lager for 8 bucks. Come down and enjoy our patio. It's open in the afternoon, not really in the evening, but a lot of good folks hanging out back there. Come on down, give us a shot. Drop by the bar, make some friends. Thanks, folks. Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District, San Francisco, California. 
with a happy hour every Monday through Friday until 7 p.m. Don't miss it. Go to Bender's Bar. Big supporter of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2018. Oh, yeah. It goes down. Come smoke with your boy. Grinder. Spark is San Francisco's premier cannabis dispensary with a focus on serving and educating patients for seven years. Spark is dedicated to creating the best in-store experience with its extensive menu, friendly staff, and one of the few cannabis vape lounges in San Francisco. Spark welcomes you to visit its two great locations as a medical patient or for recreational adult use in 2018. Spark is located at 1256 Mission Street between 8th and 9th and at 473 Haight Street at Fillmore. Both locations are open until 10 p.m. every night. Spark staff looks forward to serving you. Coming at these bitches and all these snitches hitting switches going back to bitches. Rainbow Grocery, a worker-owned and operated food cooperative located at 1745 Folsom Street in the Mission District of San Francisco. Let's hear what locals have to say about Rainbow Grocery. Their bulk section is dope AF. I love their their variety of cheese and home decor items uh, and this of unique items that you can't find anywhere else. Their cheese section is insane. I love Rainbow Grocery because it's the number one grocery store to shop at when you're having a potluck and need to fulfill everyone's dietary needs. They don't have meat. Rainbow Grocery Cooperative, an amazing San Francisco staple since 1975. For all your space chicken sci-fi comedy non-political humor needs, go to timstesseract.com. Read fiction about the future of San Francisco after the water wars of 2121 in Jane 6. Ask a Jedi for important life hacks. Eat flesh with the bear exoskeleton contessa. And check your horror horoscope on Horoscopia. Updated every three parsecs. Timstesseract.com Timstesseract.com So you want to be a comic? It's not as easy as we make it. 